What London Can Be is brought to you by London Community Foundation, an organization dedicated to improving communities across London and Middlesex County. Uh, welcome, everybody, to our London Community Foundation's Vital Conversations series. In this series, we engage panels of experts to look at key problems and challenges that face our city and our whole region. We identify the key issues in our Vital Science Report. And if you have a few moments after this uh, noon hour, please have a look at our last report. It's bethechangelondon.ca, all one word. Over the last year, we've had public conversations on um, racial equity, housing, uh, education, and environment. But today we're looking at a very crucial issue for our, uh, for our region, and that's food security. My name is Jerry White. I'm a professor emeritus at Western University, a board member at uh, London Community Foundation. I chair our Vital Signs Project and our uh, Social Impact Financing Committee. Today, we're honored to have a marvelous panel of experts with deep knowledge of the challenge that faces us regarding food security. Nancy Buchanan is a family social worker at the Southwest Ontario Aboriginal Health Access Centre, or SOHAC that we call it for short. Uh, one of the services that Nancy and the team and SOHAC offer in London is an Indigenous serving food bank. They set up this service after they saw a staggering 470% increase in their clients reporting food insecurity to the healthcare providers. And that was between 2018 and 2021. Welcome, Nancy, and thanks so much for your time. Sarah Stern leads the Maple Leaf Center for Food Security and Maple Leaf's other social impact initiatives. She's responsible for management and operations of the center, including building the portfolio of projects which it supports. Sarah has spent the majority of her career in nonprofit sector and has a history of building cross-sectoral partnerships to create social change. Thanks for being here with us, Sarah. Since 1988, Jane Roy has been involved with the London Food Bank. She's currently the co-executive director. And in this time, she's been remarkably successful at developing the organization's profile in the community. Jane served a two-year term as chair, chairperson for the Ontario Association of Food Banks and was also a key member of the mayor's anti-poverty task force. Pleasure to have you here, Jane. Our last expert panelist is Becky Ellis. Becky is the executive director of Urban Roots London a nonprofit organization that revitalizes underused land in the city of London for agriculture. She holds a PhD in geography and environment from Western University, and her research is fo focused on urban agriculture, urban beekeeping, and pollinator gardening. Becky is a longtime community activist who is dedicated to the creation of a more socially just and ecologically sustainable city. And not to mention, I do know that you're also a gardener, a beekeeper, and you ride bikes like I do. Welcome, Becky. By the way, I just wanted to say um, that LCF is extremely proud to have been a supporter, both morally and financially, to all the organizations on our panel today. We at LCF want to say thank you, thank you, thank you for your amazing work. I'm sure many of you have seen the reports of year-over-year -year increases in London food bank usage up 38%, I think, in the last year, some months setting records, topping 4,000 clients. CBC reported that in, in Ontario, one in six households, or 16%, were food insecure in the last two years. 
Nearly 5% of households in the province experienced what we call severe food insecurity. And it's important to understand what that means. That means family members ate less, missed meals or went days without eating due to a lack of money. The hardest hit, data seems to show, are renters, those in assistance, but the research shows it's hitting people across the entire work spectrum. So we face problems very clearly. But enough from me, let's turn to our expert panel. My first question is general and it's addressed to all the panelists. I guess the simplest way for me to put it is why are we seeing these numbers? And from your perspective, what is the biggest barrier to making food available to those experiencing food insecurity? Could I ask Sarah from Maple Leaf to be first on this answer, please? Thanks, Jerry, and, and thank you for inviting me to participate today. Um, I, I think when you when you define food insecurity, you talked about it's the family's inability to pay for food. So when you look at the challenges today, we've seen the inflation drive costs up for, for, for absolutely everything. And food is often the last thing a household will pay for. So you need to pay to keep a roof over your head. And we know that the costs of housing continue to go up, especially for renters. Um, we know that you need to pay to get to a place of employment or to pay for childcare. Today, you also need to be paying for a form of communication and you need to pay for food. And we know the cost of food continues to go up. So when you put all of those things together, you can see that food insecurity numbers are expected to continue to rise. Um, I, I would note that the past three years of data, food insecurity has actually stayed pretty stable. The numbers are way too high but it's pretty stable, but all the leading indicators, including food bank use has skyrocketed. And um, so I have to admit, I'm a little bit scared. I think in the next couple of weeks, we'll see the latest Canadian income survey. It will have the latest food insecurity numbers. And I can only expect that they're gonna be higher uh, because people can't afford to pay for food right now. Well, thanks very much, Sarah. Becky, could I ask you for next, please? Sure, and thank you very much for having me here today. I want to echo what um, Sarah said, um, the rising cost of living, especially cost of housing, mean that people have less money to spend on food. Uh, in 2022, um, in, a, in, a, in an article by London Free Press, it was reported that rents increased in London by 33%. And we are a living wage employer, and the living wage has jumped from 1655 in 2022 to 1805 in 2023 in the city of London. Um, so if people don't have enough money um, to, to afford their, their shelter, then they won't have very much money to spend on food. Um, on a larger scale, I do want to say that um, the increase in food prices globally uh, have risen due to a lot of complex factors, um, but increasing consolidation of ownership and control in all aspects of the global food system is definitely part of this. And when that's coupled with shocks to the global food system due to things like climate change, war in areas of the world that produce a lot of food, uh, and pandemics like we've seen with COVID-19, um, this does cause for many complex reasons an increase in food prices. Um, and I just wanted to also mention that um, there is enough food in the world um, to get, to get a, a wonderful, healthy diet to everybody on earth. Um, and it's very much a global problem, and it's one reason why we at Urban Roots London um, also talk about food justice as well. Thanks, Becky. Jane, could I get your view, please? 
Um, sure, I, I, I of course echo all of those comments. Um, and just to throw some new numbers out to you, uh, the month of January, we almost saw 5,000 families, 13,000 people come. So, I mean, you're talking last year, 4,000 families. I mean, we're, we're approaching 5,000 and every food bank is kind of seeing that. We're kind of the canary in the coal mine. And when you talk about food insecurity, that's one thing, but I know we're actually talking about food security, which is a whole other thing. I mean, the, these are, you know, the 5,000 families a month that are coming to us are the ones, obviously, they've, they've been hanging on for as long as they can. You know, 36% of the folks that are coming have never been here, never been to the food bank before. But there's all, there's, that's only very small percentage of, of Londoners who are actually facing difficulty. There's a, there's, a, there's a whole group that actually doesn't come to the food bank or don't access social services. So the real need to look at food security and make sure our whole community um, is taken care of is incredibly important. So I would, I would for sure echo um, both, of the, both of the ladies in terms of what's going on. It is, it's very scary in terms of what's, what's happening. Thanks very much. Uh, Nancy, can I get your view? And so, so, so we're going to do a whole bunch of echoing here, but building on what Jane has said, um, you know, that old saying, if you build it, they will come. I think you could open five more, 10 more food banks and the numbers are going to continue to increase. You know, not, not only the loss of jobs due to COVID over the last three years, but children staying at home, more meals to be made because the children are at home and not in school more people working from home. So again, you know, you're not packing that lunch and you've got more people, you know, accessing during the day that you did before, but inevitably it's, it's down to the cost of everything. I mean, $5.95 for a head of lettuce, you know, that, that's crazy. It, it reminds me back to when the government had that, uh, what was in the 94, I think, and they cut back on welfare and they were talking about bartering for tuna prices. Like it doesn't exist, you can't do that. You can't go to a cashier and say, I can't afford this, I'll give you this instead. It's just, it's not able to be done. And so when you've got the masses and the prices just keep rising and now we've got the train wreck in Ohio. So what's that gonna do to the prices with that water supply possibly tainted and so forth? You know, it's scarier and scarier. Yeah, thanks. Can I follow up with you, Nancy? Uh, sure. Dohack has reported, um, as we mentioned before in the introduction, a 470% increase in clients reporting food insecurity. Um, what I want to explore is uh, what are the particular issues that are facing Indigenous community members? And I'm really interested in both our neighboring First Nation communities, uh, and as a past board member of Namrand, uh, our urban Indigenous neighbors as well. Can you um, give us a little bit of an idea of what are the particular uh, issues that are facing uh, Indigenous peoples in this region? Well, again, uh, poverty is a huge one, and I'm not going to say every Indigenous person is in poverty, but just reflective of the city's population and the levels of poverty, it goes hand in hand with those numbers. But again, you know, we built this with your help. We built this anonymous food kitchen, I want it, or pantry. And as people find out it's here, because they trust SOHAC, because we're an Indigenous agency, and they don't feel judged when they enter, and they can select their own items, not um, dependent on what's available, you know, in a bag. The food bank does a great job, don't get me wrong, but they can come in and, you know, 
say what they're looking for. And then we order according to what is being demanded or requested. But with poverty, an individual shops the middle aisles of a grocery store. And so when you're stuck in the middle aisles with the processed food, the canned goods, you know, the red dyes and so on and so forth, over generations, you don't learn how to cook. You don't know how to use fresh produce, those items that are on the outside perimeters of a grocery store. So now we've got individuals coming in who do not know their traditional foods, do not know how to cook a rutabaga. They don't know how to do beets or you know Brussels sprouts. So we can provide the healthy, but we have to go beyond and provide the techniques to allow these people um, to find those recipes, to go back to the traditional foods that are healthy. Diabetes is rampant in First Nations individuals. So the diet is a little different if we're gonna try to navigate through and, and get their sugars down and so forth. So being you know, able to come in here without judgment, to be able to access traditional foods, pickerels, plus keeping the economy going because we're buying our foods from the local reserves. So we have a butcher that works here in town, but he has a small butchery out on Oneida. We're accessing pickerel from Kettle Point. We've um, engaged a hunter who works with another butcher to be able to get venison, bison, and make sure that it is, you know, through health standards, um, cleaned and dressed and, and properly available to us, wild rices rather than white starchy rices. So the indigenous population, a lot of people don't realize, but we have a higher tolerance. So if somebody had a sugar level of 27 in the general population, they may be in the hospital. First Nations individual with a number of 27 for diabetes, they may not even have a symptom. Like we, we do have a different genetic makeup through generations. And just being able to service the people are coming, knowing it's here. We've had people show up at our door. So-and-so told me you're giving away food. They're not even our client, but somebody has told them. We also cater to our homeless, which we have a large transient population here in the London Sohag. And so we've gone to Gordon Foods and we've got the canned goods that have the pop top lids or the individual oatmeals, or the soups from Costco that you just open a lid and microwave. And so they have that container, they don't need a can opener. You know, we can give them the fresh oranges or the peaches that, you know, is gonna help them with their vitamins, but yet they don't have to worry about finding somewhere to cook it or have a pot or a pan. So I don't know if I got off target there, I'm gonna reread your question. <laughs> But basically, yeah, the more we can offer, the more the truth is coming out. Even those who are employed with their children staying at home, the rising cost of daycare, everything else has to come before food. So we, and people who went to the food bank once a month are now going once a week. Yeah, th <clears throat> thanks, I'm an old Saskatchewan boy. And uh, in the early seventies, um, I got lessons from uh, local peoples on, some of the traditional ways of growing and doing. So this discussion has been going on for a long time and it's amazing work that you're doing. Um, well, it's amazing when you see somebody looking at some baby spinach and they're like, how do I cook it? 
you know, they're not even sure they can eat it raw. They don't know mm -hmm. because in poverty has put them in the middle aisles with the raviolis. Really appreciate your insights. Thanks very much. Uh, Becky, uh, maybe I could ask you uh, a question. Urban Roots wants to challenge what uh, you call an inequitable food system. And many of us would agree with you. And you say that that demands that you understand and take on social and political barriers to equity. Um, you also want to improve the amount and quality of food that's available by working with others. Can I ask you to give us some insights into some of your important projects? And um, if you could, could you give us an idea of some of the outcomes or outcomes you're expecting? Sure. Um, so core to Urban Roots London's work is the belief that everyone deserves access to fresh, high quality and culturally appropriate food. And this is regardless of their ability to pay for it. Um, so we have been working very closely um, with the London Food Bank, uh, the Middlesex London Health Unit and um, community resource centers to get our organic, beautiful produce directly to people who need it. So and a very exciting thing that happened with Urban Roots London in 2022 is our community pop-up markets, um, which um, allows for people to come and take the food that they want and take the food that they need. Um, and it's a really vibrant community space that we work to create. Um, and we are really excited to be able to, uh, for various reasons, produce more fruits and veggies, well, mainly veggies and herbs, um, for our community pop-up markets this year, partly because um, due to some of our generous funders, we were able to put in some greenhouses, which is really important for extending growing season uh, in southwestern Ontario. Um, and so we're able to, um, to increase the amount of food that's available, and we're also um, really excited to be able to work with more social agencies to offer community pop-up markets. Um, they've been integrated into the Harvest Bucks program, which I'm sure many of you are familiar with in London. And uh, we're really excited because they allow people to come to this market see that, you know, the very high quality produce. We are not bringing um, the, you know, kind of wilted things or the older vegetables. We are bringing freshly picked, gorgeous vegetables to the market and people can choose what they want um, and, you know, can take what appeals to them. Um, and also we have two other sites. You may be familiar with our main farm site at 21 Norland Avenue, uh, but we have two other sites that represent some really exciting food security partnerships in the city of London. So our site at Phylome United Church, um, the produce that we grow there with, with our partners at Asylum um, goes directly into community food cupboards in the Northeast and Northwest of the city. And is also used in their community meals that they provide uh, every week. And so we're really excited about that. That began in 2021. And then our site at Parkwood Hospital, uh, which actually just started in 2022. So um, it's very visible if you're driving along Wellington uh, Road. So hopefully more people will take a look and see it this year. Um, it provides fresh produce directly to patients and residents. So we're very excited about that partnership as well and excited about possibilities for expansion. Um, I also wanted to say that we are very serious about farm work as being fair work. And as a small scale organic farm operation, we require human labor to grow our food. Um, and we believe that farm work should be highly valued as skilled work. 
and really important work, um, especially when we think about um, climate change and ecological destruction, small-scale organic farming, I think, will play a really crucial role into the future. Um, and so we think that farm work should be safe, should be fairly compensated, and dare I say, it should be joyful work as well. Um, we see ourselves as giving away for people who live in urban areas, who may not uh, come from farm families, or who may not currently be able to um, access farms that they grew up on, because maybe they're in other they came from other places in the world. Um, but we see ourselves as giving away for people interested in ecological small-scale farming to learn the skills of farming, to practice it, and maybe incubate um, some future farmers. Thanks. Fantastic insights. Thanks very much. Uh, Sarah, your organization, Maple Leaf Center for Food Security, is raising awareness and advocating for change, as well as funding projects um, across Canada. Can you share with us uh, more about some of the projects that you're funding and the impact that you hope to see from that work? Uh, thank you. So I think I'd start by saying we we really recognize that for food insecurity to be reduced in Canada, and we launched with the goal that we want to see food insecurity reduced by 50% by 2030. So it's a big, bold goal. Um, we've only been around six years, and in that time, food insecurity got worse. So it's sometimes a little demoralizing to look at it, but we believe that that's possible and we all need to work together. And I think what we recognize is the projects that we fund are a great area to learn about what works and what makes the difference and then advocate to scale different initiatives for broader reach and advocate for income policies and other policies that will help make it easier for individuals to access food. From a project perspective, I'll, I'll talk about a few. So I think we recognize when we look at the barriers to food security and the barriers to becoming food secure, the number one is income. So how do we help people get more income in their pockets? Well, we learned that there's about $1.7 billion of federal benefits that are left on the table each year that low-income individuals aren't accessing through tax filing and applying for benefits. So we've partnered with a national organization called Prosper Canada to help people access benefits that they're entitled to. So that's either through tax filing clinics or through a benefit navigator tool. So they have a benefit wayfinder that's an online tool where people can go in and it's catered per province and you indicate where you are and it'll ask you a bunch of questions and help identify benefits that you might be entitled to. Now, we recognize that there continue to be barriers. It is not an easy system to navigate and that people need supports in many cases to help get through that system. But our number one thought was if all that money is sitting there and people are entitled to it, if we can get it into the hands of individuals, that'll make it easier for them to purchase food. So we've been working with Prosper for about a year and a half on that project so far. And in that, we are doing a measurement of how much money people are able to access and what impact does that have on reducing food insecurity. And um, so we do ask a set of questions around that to try to understand what that gap is for individuals. And um, so that's one around getting money in people's pockets. Two, we heard a few years ago um, about a harvesting project that took place in Clyde River, Nunavut. And they said, okay, we have been harvesting on the land and for time immemorial. And we know that there's good food that we wanna bring into our communities. And it was a culturally relevant program. But the way that um, accessing food on from the land has shifted over time. So it actually costs a lot of money to go out on the land. It, it, you need a snowmobile, you need to pay for fuel. 
Most of the programs that are supported through the federal government uh, for food across Canada's territories are, are done through the Nutrition North program. So it's a substitute subsidy on store-bought food. They have started providing funds for harvester programs, but from what we were told, it's mostly like weekend money. So you go out for a weekend, go out on the land. But the problem with over time with climate change, if you're not out on the land all the time, it no longer becomes safe to get around. With moving ice patterns, you need to be very well aware of where food is and how you can get there safely. So they did a pilot where they said, we are going to hire a hunter harvester and pay them the salary of a teacher. We're gonna hire them full-time. Their job is to go out on the land and we're gonna track the value of the meat protein that they bring back into the community. So in this pilot with a sample size of one in Clyde River Nunavut, they calculated over kind of a 10 month period, the individual brought back kind of two thirds of what they earned in the value of meat that was distributed in the community. They said, well, this has some potential. So that program has now been scaled up and is working with, I think, 40 different hunter harvesters across the territories. And part of the program is around knowledge translation. So bringing youth out on the land, bringing food back to the community, continuing to calculate the value of the protein brought into the community, but also looking at the other community benefits of a program like this. We're funding the evaluation of this program. And we do this with an eye towards saying, okay, is this a good way to bring food into communities? Is it the food that communities want? And if so, how do we take this robust evidence base that we expect to have and then take that to the government to advocate for change to shift the way some of those funds are spent? So we're kind of looking within that project, how do we develop an evidence base and then be able to go to the government to replicate and scale it? And the third program that I'll tell you about is one that I, I keep getting excited about because I keep learning more and more about it. Um, it's around food prescriptions. And, and I think I heard someone mention this idea of providing food uh, is for the healthcare system. And what we are seeing is across Canada, there are a variety of different programs that are giving individuals money or credit to purchase food. Um, this looks different depending where you are and depending who the key funder is. Sometimes it is tied to a medical professional through a community health center or doctor. In other cases, it's through a community organization where individuals have identified that they don't have the funds to pay for food and they are given some sort of credit where they are able to go purchase food. In many cases, they are purchasing food at community markets, building community connections, and helping to advocate for change for themselves over time. What we're seeing south of the border in the US is that these programs have tremendous scale. People are tapping into mainstream retail so that they don't necessarily have to go to a community market just to purchase produce. They're able to go to any community retailer that exists and buy all of their needs, but have the credit for, the, um, for fresh produce. So you're seeing positive health outcomes in that as well. So we're really interested to see what is going on in this space across Canada, how we can share that knowledge and build more change across the place. And I think the final thing I would just note on from, that, from a funding perspective is the center is also funding research. So we've touched a lot today around um, income and food insecurity. We found out last year that 74% of people in Canada who are experiencing food insecurity have incomes that would put them above the poverty line. What this means is that programs that have income cutoffs are often missing people who are food insecure. So we're trying to dig in to learn more about that 
and we're working with Food Banks Canada on the creation of a material deprivation index so to understand what it is that people are missing out on, what it is that everyone should have access to that they're not able to based on the current measures that we have. Uh, underlying all the work that we do is we are looking to share information about what we're learning. So we are continually trying to think about better ways to do that um, and, and look forward to more opportunities like this to share. Thank you. Oh, that's fascinating. Um, Jane, um, I'm aware from working on LCF's COVID Response Council that the Food Bank has faced tremendous challenges over the last few years. Um, obviously, dramatic increase in demand. Uh, the need to reorganize the delivery system, uh, getting people cooperating within the city, um, and much, much more. Can you tell us how you've approached these challenges, these and other challenges, any, any ones you'd like to point to? And particularly, um, we're interested to know what can we as Londoners and we as people in organizations, what can we do to support your work? Mm -hmm. So how have we all approached these channel challenges over the past three years? Basically by pulling our hair out a lot and screaming and being, you know, when we talk about what keeps us up at night, this is what keeps us up at night. Food banks were never meant to be an adjunct social service safety net for everybody, but obviously that's what we've become. Um, over the past three years, it's been really, continue to be the yin and the yang of the food bank, it's been very, very difficult seeing what families, and we talk numbers, but really those are individuals, those are families, those are households facing those challenges. Um, you know, but the public has been incredibly um, giving and has been, and um, the donations continue to go up and have matched. And so that's been wonderful in that kind of context, but obviously this isn't the kind of system that we want. So a few of the things that happened over the past three years um, were obviously we turned, we, we had small depots around in the area and we, we've obviously have partners, partnerships with many different organizations across the city, um, but particularly with the resource centers, we set up a system where you could go to the resource center or you could go to your neighborhood instead of coming to the food bank. Um, and so it was trying to have this decentralized model and that that's, you know, that's been working well, but obviously the working well is is one of those things that's, again, very, very difficult. So people who had the barrier of coming couldn't get to the food bank um, locally, could actually now had the ability to go to a resource center. We, we appreciated that from the context of the food banks. We just basically tried to handle food. Uh, the resource centers actually were able to, to some degree, uh, deal with more poverty issues. But of course, they're swamped as well. So um, that's been difficult. Um, I think the other thing we've recognized over years and years as well is um, when many years ago, when we looked at what we were giving, of course, it was typically the inside of the grocery store. It was typically non-perishable food items, um, but more and more money and more and more donations have come in at the fresh. Um, and the one thing we haven't mentioned um, is actually the fact that we as society throw out good fresh produce, um, whether we're individuals or whether as a society. Um, and there's organizations obviously um, that are 
whether it's the Food Coalition London, whether it's the Mission Services, whether it's ourselves, we're going around to grocery stores, to farmers, to other places, the food terminal to bring those to bring that food in when it would normally actually go. It would be either turned under in terms of farmers' fields or would be thrown out. Um, it's still it's still good. It requires a fair bit of work in terms of sorting, but the percentage of food that we as a society waste obviously has been is very very difficult. Um, and more and more organizations are built around trying to get that food and get to get get it to people that need it so that now the food bank when we look at what comes in and what goes out we're we're 53 54 percent of the food is is fresh frozen perish like is perishable um so that's that's a that's a tremendous shift in terms of what what goes out as well um so i you know when we talk about these things again i always think about the food bank is food banks always recognize we are not meant to be the answer so all of these other things are are incredibly important to to keep people fed and to keep them part of society thanks uh, very much jane um the last question for the panel is a, a same question for all of you and um uh, i guess i'm gonna throw it first at you becky um there's several things that are at the periphery of a lot of discussions that uh, that you folks have uh, given us for today and a lot of the programs. And that is uh, the relationship of government uh, at all levels uh, to what you're trying to do and what we're trying to, um, to improve. So what is your message to governments at all levels? Uh, and what are the policy changes that we uh, as citizens should be demanding as well? Becky? Okay, so big questions. Um, I've got some big answers, I think. <laughs> um, so number one is people need to be able to afford food. And if um, if they're not able to afford food, um, it's partly because they are spending a lot, they're not making enough money or and they're spending a lot of money on shelter. We need affordable housing and all levels of government have to take this very, very seriously. Um, we also need, I believe, increases to social assistance, to ODSP, and to minimum wage. I, I believe the minimum wage should be a living wage. And in London right now, the living wage is calculated at $18.05 an hour. Um, that's what a person would need to work full time in order to reasonably pay for the cost of living a decent life in the city of London. Um, other than that, um, I do believe we need policies to encourage a robust, vibrant, and resilient re regional food system. We need more farms and more farmers, not less. Um, this is from my perspective as a small scale, um, as, as, as someone um, helping to operate a small scale organic farm operation, and also as someone who grew up on a small scale farm as well. Uh, we need support for small-scale diversified ecological farms, something that I think is really crucial into the future with um, the shocks that climate change will cause the global food system. Farmland should be protected. It also needs to be affordable. There's a whole bunch of different strategies people have proposed for, for this. Urban agriculture is one of those potential answers if people can find access to urban land that's safe to grow on um, and accessible. Also, um, there's a movement of people towards um, more agricultural land trusts, both in rural areas, but also in some urban areas, too. There's a really exciting one in the Parkdale neighborhood of Toronto. Um, we need the ability to create smaller farms. There's a lot of municipal 
municipal bylaws against this, um, against splitting farmland into smaller parcels, but for growing vegetables and herbs, small farms are a great way to do this, and a great way to do this in an ecological scale. Um, I and Urban Roots London strongly believes that land needs to be returned to Indigenous nations, communities, and peoples so that um, they can create their own local food systems and have self-determination in terms of access to food and food, um, food, food, food production. Um, and so, you know, another really important aspect for Urban Roots London is farm work should be fair work. And, um, scaling that out a little bit from our own operation here in the city of London. Um, I very strongly support increased rights for migrant farm workers to have safe, fairly compensated work, to have good living conditions, and to have secure residency um, when they're here doing, doing work, uh, really essential work that we need as people who eat uh, in Canada. Thanks very much, Becky. Uh, Jane. What's your policy message? Yeah, um, I I apologize for the last question. Um, you also asked me about what the community could do. So let me answer that one a little bit before we talk about the policy. Absolutely. I, yeah, no, I, I, I think what the community can do, individuals take care of your neighbors, but you know, basically get back to being a community. It, it's honestly better to, to have the community take care of the people that you know that are struggling than actually coming to a food bank. It's a tough thing to come to a food bank for sure. You know, we have to operate the way we do because of the numbers that we serve, but just take care of the people around you and in all sorts of different ways. I think from a policy perspective, I most a lot of them have been touched on, you know, when you come to income, um, you know, there's, when it comes to housing, obviously housing, the reason people come to us is because housing costs are so high. So even something simple like, you know, limiting the amount that um, when, when there's a changeover in ownership in terms of landlords, um, you know, there's an incentive to actually get people out of their homes and raise the rent particularly, even, even reintroducing some measures there that would that would assist. Um, when it comes to things like obviously income, th there's there's a number of things there. You know, even the um, align the definition of a spouse with the Family Law Act. Some some simple things like that. People aren't able to access some benefits just due to definitions. Um, the the you know RSPs are considered assets, and so those are taken into account. So there's a, a number of different things that people. Um, they have to, how should I say, they have to access and they're not able to save themselves. And that actually hurts them in the long term. So I think there's people smarter than we are advocating for a lot of those things. But we definitely know that we need people not to come to the food bank. And that that involves obviously their income, what's coming in, and that definitely involves what they're spending with regards to with regards to their living circumstances. Thanks, Jane. Uh, Nancy, are there particular policy measures that you would like to put on the table? Well, the one thing Sarah said about uh, Benefit Navigator, that really intrigued me. I do find that it's not transparent. When a benefit comes, even for a professional who's an advocate, you know, I've had clients come to me and say, I heard about this, and then I got to go trying to find it. And so just allowing people to know what benefits are allowed in a more transparent you know, put it, put it on boards, put it on, you know, TV, put it out there so that people know the one that's coming to mind right now is the one-time housing benefit. I mean, 
I, I saw it and every single client I told it to had no idea that that was available. And that's $500 that is tax-free, non-reportable. That's a grocery trip, you know? So, and, and have those benefits where they're not reportable if you're on a fixed income so that somebody who's on ODSP doesn't have to worry, well, it's just gonna come off my next check. So why bother applying? Because then that money sits there with the government and as we know with agencies, if you don't use it, you lose it. So if the government doesn't use it, they think it's not needed. And then they kibosh that program kind of a thing. So transparency, let us know. Either let people on ODSP know through the ODSP office, OW office, send out pamphlets, or at least let agencies know so we can advocate and help our clients access what they deserve. Thanks, Nancy. Um Sarah, can I ask for your ideas on what policy changes we should be demanding? Yeah, thank you. So I'd say we've primarily, we've been around six years and have primarily focused at a federal level. And I think our number one, number one push is that this government needs to set a target to reduce food insecurity. If you set a target, it promotes cross-departmental working groups. It has people working together and it, 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 trickled, it trickles down. Right now, we have a food policy for Canada that talks about ensuring food for everyone in Canada, and we have a poverty reduction strategy. And our poverty reduction strategy has a target to reduce poverty by 50%, and we're making good progress. But when you look at that dashboard, there's a reporting dashboard with that, food insecurity is going in the wrong direction. So it's an indicator, but not an outcome. So we really think we need a target to reduce food insecurity to align action. Um, Food insecurity crosses everything. So we've talked a bit about housing. When we look at the housing programs and policies, should we be able to measure, is that helping to reduce food insecurity? Um, it hits agriculture, it hits employment, social development Canada, it hits Indigenous Services Canada. We need all of these groups working together. And I think the other thing that's quite current is the creation of the Canada Disability Benefit. 50% of people in Canada who are food insecure above the age of 15 have a disability. The Canada Disability Benefit could be something that helps change that. So if it is created as a way that it tops up the provincial benefits, that it brings people not just above the poverty line, but to a position where they can be food secure, could be a great next step. It's something that there's momentum on and something that's quite easy to let your elected official know that you think that it is important. I don't think we'll see it in the budget next week, but now is the time to start pushing for it for the 2024 budget. Thanks very much. Um, <clears throat> I just wanted to say uh, London Community Foundation is building uh, something we are calling the London Data Hub. Uh, we, we've uh, got some uh, 78 organizations in the city and region that are contributing data and research uh, uh, to it. Uh, and we're creating some um, markers where you can see trends and ten, uh, tendencies. And so we'll be taking your suggestions from today and incorporating them into uh, uh, the Data Hub. And we'll also, uh, with uh, all our mailing lists and uh, audience that uh, comes to these talks, we have you a way of getting back to you. We'll give you that address when that opens up. And uh, I think it'll be a tool for organizations to use to advocate for policy change and a way of informing people about what's working and what's not working. So thank you very much for your proposals there. We do have a few minutes uh, to take uh, questions from the audience. Um, 
could I ask my uh, communications uh, comrade uh, Matt Brewer to uh, take care of that uh, operation, please, if there's any questions on the floor. Um, does anyone have any thoughts on social prescribing with regards to meal sharing or community cooking or healthcare workers screening for food insecurity at the time of discharge from hospital? I'm happy to jump in on that. Um, I, I think social prescribing has a lot of potential right now. I think the idea then, we know that only about a quarter of people who are food insecure find their way to a food bank for a variety of reasons. But we also know that people who are experiencing food insecurity have high rates of healthcare usage. They have more healthcare issues. So if we started to screen people for food insecurity at the time of checkout or during regular uh, healthcare appointments, it's a way to reach a lot more people and connect them to areas where they can get further support. So whether that's a food prescription, whether that's a referral to to say, did you know that there is a food bank that you could go to, something that someone may not have done before to help them get there, whether it's a community meal where they can meet others and pool resources, all of these are things that could help build connections and perhaps help people who currently are not tapping into the social supports that are out there while we wait for policy change. Thank you. I got an email here. We're seeing an ever, ever greater centralization uh, and monopolization in growing with the size of farms, uh, transportation, and, uh, and the selling and distribution of food. Is this a great risk to us? Is this something that should be managed and something that should be dealt with? I do think that it is a risk to the global food system um, all around the world. I um, sometimes teach and write uh, more globally about the food system, and it's definitely also causing extreme problems for people in the global south, um, where there are many small-scale farmers and people who rely on farm work for their livelihoods. Um, I do think we need, as a, I mean, as a, as a executive director of a small-scale urban farming operation, I do think we need more farms, more farmers, not less. I think we need farms that are small scale and are diverse in terms of what they're growing, but also who the farmers are as well. Um, and we need um, more farms that are ecologically minded. I think um, these, this type of farming can play a really crucial role um, in the future when we know that climate change is going to cause serious problems to the global food system. And you know, I just think it, it leads to um, a really vibrant local community when people are able to um, visit the farms where their food is growing, are able to interact with farmers, are able to spend some time working on a farm and experience all the joy of that. So I do think uh, it is really important to have um, a diversity of types of farms, a diversity of sizes of farms and a diversity of who farmers are. And we know that in Canada, farmers are older. They, the, the farmers who own farm operations, um, not necessarily the workers, but the farmers um, tend to be white and overwhelmingly men. And even the women are involved often, um, especially for family farms. And we want this to change. And we see that smaller farms like Urban Roots London and other smaller farms that happen uh, that are, that are um, exist you know all around the country can help to incubate 
new farmers who are more diverse and also interested in practicing uh, di diverse methods of farming. Question from John. Um, it seems to me that there are often siloed discussions on food security, housing affordability and transportation. But for an individual, these things are all related together and, and, and sort of tied to one another. Um, do you have any thoughts on how we can bring these discussions together and um, more strongly in our community and tackle this almost one bigger problem, perhaps? I guess, can I answer? I guess I'll answer that question. Um, De definitely. And part of part of it is when we exist in our silos, it's because it's where we work and we spend our days. But there do exist a lot of networks on all of these different things. So from a poverty perspective, you know, the Children and Youth Network, all of the agencies to get together and sit at different tables. Um, London Community Foundation has had tables. United Way has had tables. I think from a food perspective, there's the London Food, Middlesex London Food Policy Council. Um, that you know is just finishing up a food assessment and and there that's the whole field to fork kind of thing and food what tends to happen is that food insecurity takes over everything what really we should be talking about food security which is for all of us um, so they're actually trying to um, trying to bridge that gap um, and they're having consultations and and there's some other assessments and I think there's another community consultation coming up shortly but I, I think these tables exist part of it is as we talk some of us have been around for a long time and occasionally we go, oh man, this is the same conversation we had 40 years ago. And I'm sorry, I gotta go to bed or, <laughs> um, but we still need to keep talking. We still need to keep in the room and and we will get there. It's just, it's important. And there's a lot of different things happening. And, and in the end, policy change happens at the governmental level, um, whether it's legislation or whether it's the bureaucracy in terms of um, following through. So I think, we consistently need to come together and decide what those priorities are in terms of policy and continue to engage at all three levels of government, for sure. Thank you. Matt, did you have any other questions thrown your way? Yeah, it's a couple more. I'm going to, they're, they're a bit similar, so hopefully we'll try and combine them into one. So um, is there anything like a plan to increase the number of small-scale farms and gardens in Canada? Like, do we know... Do we know how much extra acreage we need there? And um, is there any sort of innovation uh, that you see as being impactful to help that? Um, I guess I'll answer that one. Um, unfortunately, things are kind of moving in the opposite direction. There are all across Canada, um, smaller farms are being kind of um, pushed aside and bigger farms are arising. And that continues to be a trend. It's been a trend for decades now, continues to be a trend. Um, there are some areas in Canada where there are still quite a lot of small farms, um, for example, out, out east, more so than Ontario, um, but they are seeing pressures there as well. Uh, I think a few things, and I, what, what I also want to say is it wouldn't need to increase acreage. There's a lot, there's enough acreage um, as farmland. Um, we need to protect that farmland from being turned into suburban land. Um, there's lots of ways to do that. Um, but what I see is some hopeful things developing, um, but in a very grassroots way, not in terms of government, um, is this move towards agricultural land trusts. That is something that is, is developing. Um, 
land trusts are something that have protected conservation land for a while now, and it's been a strategy to protect conservation land. And there are people now uh, pushing towards that to protect agricultural land as well. And I do see urban agriculture as a really important development as well. I mean, urban agriculture has always been in cities since humans created cities. Um, but I think some North American cities um, kind of uh, excluded it in various ways or attempted to. And there has been this movement, it's been ongoing for a couple of decades to have more um, lands available for urban agriculture and for community gardening. The city of London put together an urban agriculture strategy. It was a very good plan. And um, there are some changes that need to be made, but I, in terms of uh, bylaws, but I see that as a guiding plan that is extremely positive. And um, I think city staff are very serious about trying to support urban agriculture. And so I'd like to work with them to continue that. Thanks, Becky. Uh, given that we're almost at the end of our day, uh, I'm going to turn the tables one more time and say if any of our uh, expert panelists have any last minute comments that you would like to make. Um, going back to the question about, um, you know, checking in with clients before they discharge from hospital and stuff, I'd like to say that here at SOHAC, we are a health access center. So we have our doctors and nurse practitioners. We're also a no wrong door. So that is one question that is always asked. So our primary care, they get that first initial, you know, how's everything? Is there anything we can help you with? They notice weight loss or, you know, unhealthy and connect with the dietitian or connect with social work or have somebody bring them upstairs to go through the food. So that is one thing that we are really on top of, and I'm glad we are. And then when our clients, and I hate to make it sound silo, but our clients, if they go to the hospital and there's a discharge plan, that again is shared with social work at the hospital and so on and so forth. I'd like to see where there was a way that our Indigenous perspective could marry on with some other agencies or to make this just in a broad Across the board practice because it doesn't matter if you're indigenous or if you're a new immigrant or anything you're still a human being who need to have basic supports in place. Jane you talked about what people can do in the community and, and to help each other and I think I'd echo that I think if you have the means donate to the charities in your community that are making a difference for people but also reach out to your elected official reach out to your city councilor reach out to your MPP and reach out to your MP. Because if they don't hear from you, if they don't hear from others in your community, that message doesn't carry forward. And when I've had the opportunity to talk to MPs and talk to elected officials, they say my constituents don't talk about these issues. So if you are concerned about food insecurity, make sure that they hear from you and it does make a difference. Even if you get an automated response or no response, the more people that reach out, the harder we are to ignore. Thank you. Yeah, and I just want to very quickly say that uh, right now the City of London is working on their strategic plan for 2023 to 2027. This is a great time to write to your city councillor and tell them that you're worried about food, food security uh, in the City of London. Um, great opportunity and they are right now in the middle of devising what will be the strategic plan that will guide City Council for the next four years. I'd like to um, 
take a minute now uh, again to our panelists. Thank you all for helping us uh, understand this problem. Uh, and even more importantly, thanks for helping us understand what we might do about it, because a lot of things that you talked about today weren't complaints about this going wrong. They were, here's how we can do it better. And I think that's the kind of vision that uh, we at the foundation are really interested in promoting, that social, political, economic engagement to, to make uh, our, our uh, community and region uh, a much more belonging and better place to live. Thank you for your time and sharing your expertise. And I'd like to thank the audience uh, for taking your noon hour, taking time to come, taking time to listen and understand. And if I could ask you to do one more big thing, why don't you take what you liked about this, the ideas that you liked and go and tell your friends about them. Tell the people you work with about them, the organizations you're in. That would be one of the greatest things that could come out of a meeting like this. So on behalf of everybody, thank you so much to everyone for attending and, uh, and working together. And we'll see you at the next title Conversation. Thanks for joining us for this episode of What Lenin Can Be. Look for us wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about today's guest, visit us at lcf.on.ca forward slash what Lenin can be. If you like this podcast, tell a friend and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You'll find links on our website. Thank you again for listening to us.